Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 77 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, this is episode three of the video podcast which you can find at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. The first thing you'll see is the latest episode. You'll see the YouTube video embedded there. Uh, You can watch the episode there, or you can click through uh, to the YouTube channel and subscribe if you want to. Um, Man, your boy's playing injured this week. Um, I told you I've been uh, working out... I was going to say working out hard. I, I, I guess I have for me. I mean, I've been very sedentary for, for the last year. And considering I, I've probably been working out every day for the last four weeks, I, I've probably taken like three days off. Um, yeah, I've been working out pretty hard. And the exercises that I've been doing, I know I've been sort of downplaying them as sort of like mommy exercises, mommy aerobic exercises. They're fucking kicking my ass. I did one video, it was like cardio Pilates, and like for the first five minutes, I'm sort of laughing at it, like, oh, I guess we're going to have an easy day today. By the end of it, I'm like down on the mat, and I'm pouring sweat, absolutely pouring sweat in a way that I haven't done for things that were, I I thought, even more engaging cardio, in terms of uh, cardio exercise. I was completely gassed, and um, I don't know what I did on Thursday, but uh, it was a pretty hard workout. I remember sweating a lot. I think it was a lot of like bending over and like you sort of squat and like jump up and reach toward the sky, not like a burpee or something, but um, but something intense. And uh, felt fine the rest of the day. Went to bed, and I'm telling you, man, this getting old is no fucking joke, man. I woke up the next day, rolled out of bed, felt fine. As soon as I went to brush my teeth and just sort of like bend over a little bit, I felt a pain in my back like you wouldn't fucking believe. It was like a, it, it, the, the breath left me. I was seized. Um, I, I, I thought I was going to go to the floor. You know, I was so seized with pain. I, 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 I thought I was going to fall over. And um, it was kind of like a moment like I'm sure like an old person feels when they're about to fall and they're convinced like they're like, this is it. This is where I break my hip. There was nothing I could do, and um, thankfully I didn't fall, I didn't crack my head or anything like that, but um, uh, the minute it happened, I knew I was fucked. Um, I only have one other time in my life when I, uh, this was probably like five years ago, I had this like four-track you know, tape machine, one of these old reel-to-reel tape machines, um, huge piece of machinery, and just super, super heavy, and I remember lifting the thing, and even as I was lifting it, I knew, oh, I'm probably hurting something, and uh, sure as shit the next day, uh, and for like a week afterwards, I my back was all fucked up. This hurt a lot more. Um, thankfully, I'm feeling much better in only two days, but for the last couple of days, like even sitting has been pretty intolerable, so um, the fact that I'm sitting here doing the video podcast and, and feel relatively comfortable is kind of a fucking miracle. But yeah, it's, uh, it's one of these things at 35, you wake up and, uh, you know, you just can't do what you used to do. It's like, it, it's really at the point now where you see young children, especially in the way they just sort of throw their bodies around, you start to envy it. I mean, part of it is they're so close to the ground, but it's like, you know, if you go down on your knees and you're young, you can just kind of like jump up very quickly. But you know, when you get older, it's just like, you can't, man, you got to come up a little slower. You catch yourself making all those grunting noises that you, you never wanted to hear yourself make. You know, you go down on one knee and when you come up, you do the whole hip, 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 hip. 
The fucking old man creaky noises. Oh. And even when I work out, you got to go down on the mat and do stuff. It's like I can't put weight on my knees. You know, I was supposed to be doing like um, plank, these sort of plank things, you know. It's like my knees can't take it. It's too hard. And even like pivoting on my knees is like hard. It's like, Jesus Christ, man, you're 35. Are you really falling apart like this? Is this what it's come to? I mean, I guess part of it is not working out a lot in the last year, right? My body's sort of coming back to life. But um, but damn man, like I said, dude, this getting old is no joke. Um, actually, um, I was going to say tragedy. I don't know if it is a tragedy. Uh, it is what it is. But uh, my girlfriend's, how do we say this? My girlfriend's mother's, how, how do you do this? My girlfriend has a huge fucking family, and so, like, you have people who are, like, second cousins that you call uncles, and, like, it's all fucked up. I'll remember this as soon as I stop talking about it, but basically the oldest member of her family, which I think we've talked about on this podcast before, actually, like, the patriarch of the family, um, passed away. He was 89, I believe, and when I talked about him on the podcast, I had been in the, the sort of Pacific Northwest Portland area. I'll say uh, around, uh, probably around Christmas or New Year's a couple years ago. And my girlfriend's sister and her husband had just had their baby. And there was this moment on our way to a party, maybe it was a New Year's party, um, on the way to this party where we were going to stop by and visit this, uh, the oldest member of the family. So simultaneously, we would have the youngest and the oldest member of the family in the same room. And, uh, it was such a, um, I don't know, that moment really stuck in my mind. And I, I'd have to go back and listen to the, the episode. I can't remember which one it is. Maybe uh, one of you will locate it and maybe comment on the video which episode that is. Um, but uh, it was just a very poignant moment for me. Um, th- just seeing someone in that chapter of their life and just seeing kind of what their life was. Um, I, I Two things. Um, I remember recounting that story and the family, they, there was like a shop. There's basically a home. The front half of it was a shop. They had turned in like a copy slash um, camera store, and they lived in the back of it. Um, so just kind of seeing them live in the back of a shop that was now, I mean, retired now. It's non-functioning. Um, but just kind of being in their home and just kind of seeing what life was like at 89. You know, every it, it was like when you walk into most old people's home, it was like... Uh, the last decorating or anything had been done like 40 years ago. And it was like walking into a time capsule. And it was just interesting to see this old man, um, just kind of playing with this, you know, was it one year old, I believe at that time. And, uh, just getting a super, just getting a kick out of him. And, um, but kind of needing to stay seated and not really move. And, my last memory of seeing him there was this kind of cinematic moment where, you know, we're kind of in this old wood paneled room. Um, and there's like a window like above him, um, uh, where he's seated in this recliner and there's like a shaft of light coming in and the whole place is kind of dusty. So it's almost like a, like a movie set where the light is sort of fogged. You know what I mean? It's like a beam of light coming in. And, uh, they had got some cookies out for the, for the one year old earlier and as we're sort of leaving, saying goodbye, the old man has to stay seated. It's harder for him to get up. And he's sort of sitting there by himself as everyone's sort of saying their goodbyes by the door. And I remember looking over at him, and he was just sort of seated by himself, just kind of looking off into the room, you know, content to just kind of be there. And I remember him reaching over to the cookies and grabbing one and just like eating a cookie. 
And I remember in that moment thinking, you know, not certain that he was going to die, but, you know, um, evaluating that this is a very old person and uh, this is not someone in my girlfriend's family who I had met before. You know, so if this is someone that I may see every four years, there's a decent chance that we may not see them again. And uh, lo and behold, that was true. And so that's the last image I have in my mind of them seated in this recliner in a wood paneled room with this sort of shaft of light coming uh, behind them as they eat a cookie, as they treat themselves to a little snacky snack. Um, but they passed away. And, and, and I know there was something about that incident that really stuck with me because I remember saying as we were there, they had this book on the coffee table, which was a sort of um, repository of the family stories of many people who had lived in that neighborhood for a long time. Um, the area they live in in Portland is called the David Douglas Community. And they pointed out that they had this book on the counter, which we opened up to, and there was a, a segment on their family. And I was so taken with this book and this sort of interesting sort of artifact of this neighborhood um, that I went on Amazon and bought one. <laughs> I bought a used one that someone was selling on Amazon for like $12. And um, I've kept it ever since. And so now, obviously, I, I think I have to give it to my girlfriend. I mean, before it was just a weird odd thing that I would be into. Um, but now that he's passed away, I feel like, uh, I feel like it belongs in my girlfriend's family, but I know it seems a little strange, but I'd like to read you the insert about their family. Um, one, because I think it might play into other things I, I sort of have planned to talk about, but also just kind of as a in memoriam. Okay. So here's the book. If you're, if you're watching the video podcast, you can see it. I hope the light is hitting it. Okay. But this is the book. And uh, you'll see each each page is like a different, uh, if I can do this. <laughs> How do second grade teachers do this? It's like show and tell. But each page, you know, you see these little inputs on, uh, little uh, sections on families. And you know that the people wrote them themselves. Some of them are very well written. Some of them are very poorly written, right? But I'm going to turn to the one about uh, my girlfriend's family. And I, I'm trying to help keep them anonymous. Um... You know, so I'll try to I'll try to um, take things out as I need to. Um, but this is the entry on the family. Uh, I'm going to call their last name N, uh, and I'll abbreviate the names as well, just with their first letters. But here we go. Sponsored by Ascension Lutheran Church on August 18th, 1975, a refugee family, the Ns, left the Indian Town Gap camp at Pennsylvania to come to the city of Portland. The pastor, John Chamber. Mr. and Mrs. Hansen, Roger Rivera, and other members of the church welcomed their arrival in Oregon. V, who's the gentleman who passed away, V was born in 1934 at Hanam City in North Vietnam. Twice he had fled Vietnam to avoid communism. The first was in 1954, from the north to the south, and second, from the south to the United States. K, V's wife, was also born in Hanam in 1940. They were married in Saigon in 1968. From their marriage, they had four sons. Within the first week after arriving in Portland, Kay worked at a daycare center where she took care of her two youngest sons, H and H. The elder boys went to school at Park Rose Thompson School. Two weeks later, V was employed making speaker boxes. The church then sought a job for him at Nikolai Door Company, which enabled him to better support his family. Kay also sought employment at Dennis Uniform and Pendleton Woolen Mills. 
V's older brother, C, and K's younger brother, B, are the few relatives who came to the United States and settled in Portland. K and V purchased a rundown house at the corner of address. Doing most of the repairs themselves, they spent a year remodeling the house. They definitely wanted a business which would be needed in Portland's economy. On November 23, 1981, they opened a copying and printing shop. V's only experience with printing was being a proofreader at a print shop in Vietnam, where he learned the basics of printing by observing. V enrolled in classes at Portland Community College to learn more about graphic, cam- uh, about graphic camera and four-color processes. Kay also took short classes in printing design. By utilizing these skills and developing many others, V taught his wife and his sons the many tasks needed to run a printing business. On September 19, 1982, Linda, Linda Lasowski wrote in the Oregonian, Asians work to succeed. They may represent one of the few bright spots on East Multnomah County's troubled economic horizon. Between 1981 and 1985, V and K each held a second job besides running the business. They are presently self-employed, working at their print shop. After arriving in Portland, V's family lived in the apartment at address. Their first house was at address. Their present home and business is at address. The ends have affiliated with the Buddhist Association since 1975. V continues to help with the Temple Committee on his spare time. V enjoys rebuilding printing presses. Kay's hobbies include cooking and tending to her small garden consisting of flowers and persimmon fruit trees. Born in 1968, Hay, H, this is their son, enjoys making friends and going to school. Like many young adults, H, their other son, born in 1969, is interested in cars. Uh, H, their third son, was born in 1971 and enjoys participating in school activities and photography. He submits pictures for his school's newspaper and yearbook. Born in 1972 and the youngest in the family, another H, uh, has a strong interest in working with computers. Some of the many special friends they made in Portland are yada yada yada, so-and-so, a pastor, Mr. and Mrs. this and that. Um, People have been a source of consolation and have helped the ends in believing that they were right to leave the communist country and their previous home in order to seek their freedom. So anyway, yeah, I'm not sure what that means exactly, except, um, I think at the time when I, when I met this older gentleman and I was just sort of sitting in their home, it was just interesting to, you know, you're sitting across from someone in the twilight of their life and the gloaming of their life. And you see them in this sort of childlike state, right? They can't do much for themselves. And so, you know, there's nothing malicious about it, but you just sort of see them as dependent and sort of, um... I was going to say incompetent, but I don't, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean, you know, they're not able-bodied, right? And to read something like that, and it seems obvious, but we don't think about it all the time, that this person has an entire life behind them. You know, before you were born, but when you were just sort of like uh, swimming in the nether gloom of potentiality or whatever you want to say, this person was living their life. And, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing them at the end of their tra- trajectory, with every everything they've accomplished is sort of behind them. And um, yeah, it's just interesting. So rather than read their obituary, which I don't even have a, a copy of, I just thought it would be interesting as a remembrance, just sort of remember, remember their life and the things that they did. Um, 
there was a weird moment there, right? With like the sort of the, um, um, I forget the word for it, but it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a racial stereotype that we, we think is positive, but it may be negative <laughs> as well. The part about Asians may be the, uh, optimistic economic horizon of the, of the Portland area or whatever that person was saying. But, um, um, but there's two things and, and maybe this will sort of weave into what I wanted to talk about, but we have a regular listener to this podcast named David, who's been listening for a long time. And um, on a recent episode, uh, it's come up a lot, I'm sure, but I must have been talking about success, you know, reflecting on my lack of success, uh, maybe some of the small successes I may have had along the way in my life. Um, but this idea of wondering whether or not sec- uh, sex, success is something that, um, uh, you know, is it earned or is it something that comes about by chance? Uh, as I've gotten older and I've just thought about the people who are successful, especially in a creative career. Um, but there's a huge element of luck involved in that. And I was actually thinking about this again recently. And who knows, maybe it could have spawned um, when I was talking about it, when David heard this most recently. But um, I have a buddy named Paul, who's a sound engineer, who's a really great guy, just one of the most endearing dudes you've ever met. And Paul is actually the reason that I went on tour with Matt Nathanson, I believe, um, uh, and, and maybe I'll go into that later. But the point is, is I was watching one of Paul's videos. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. I believe it's just front of house engineer, um, or a sound tip, front of house engineer sound tips or something like that. But he has this great channel where he talks about working at a venue in San Francisco called bottom of the hill. And he shares stories from his experience there. And he talks about his, um, sort of philosophical and life approach to just being a sound engineer. And you don't have to be a sound engineer to enjoy it. Uh, you can just sort of start watching them and you'll just be endeared to his personality. And I think, um, you know, the work ethic that he applies to his practice are things that you can apply in your own. But at one point, he does go on to this thing about, um, you know, what led to his success or, or, or what led to the success of other people. And it's, uh, you know, he was kind of dismissing this element of luck or that luck exists, but, you know, you have to sort of be in the running uh, to get there anyway. So that's something that I've just sort of taken into my life in general, especially as I feel like my life course has sort of forced me to consider other things. I mean, if I had my druthers or if I had had my druthers you know, X number of years ago, I would have wanted to be a professional singer songwriter, making my uh, living, writing and performing my own music. Um, that didn't happen. Um, there was a period in my life where I was making money, excuse me, doing that. Sorry. I took like a whole Yeti full of water before doing this, but, um, you know, there was a time in my life where I made some money doing that. And, um, I, I certainly did some things that looked like a level of success to some people, even if there wasn't a lot of money to be made doing it, which is generally true of a creative, um, uh, creative endeavors. Um, but eventually I had to do something else. And even though I'm glad that that happened, especially, you know, pre pandemic, because, you know, the fact that I leaned into the work I already had and doubled my time there and went back to school, uh, I mean, within uh, halfway through my first semester at school, or maybe my second semester, actually, um, the pandemic hit and, uh, all of my friends who were professional musicians, their work disappeared overnight. And, uh, in many ways I felt like I was like the luckiest person in the world. Uh, I felt like I walked out of a, out of a house like moments before it collapsed. Um, but I thought about this a lot. I thought about, you know, what do I tell myself? 
you know, as I have, as I'm living in the second chapter of my life. Um, because I look back on that time period and I think, oh, there's a lot of things I could have done that I didn't do. Um, I mean, I could have moved to LA. I could have gone to twice as many open mics. Maybe I should have gone to all those shows that people played for like social networking events that were a fucking nightmare and I hated, but maybe I should have done more of that. Um, or maybe I should have let go of my creative vision and done more of the stuff that was clearly working. Maybe I should have never stopped doing cover songs. Um, those types of things. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, not to uh, go on and on about my own experience cause I'm, we've talked about that ad nauseum on other episodes, but David, a regular listener, um, sent me a YouTube link to a video he saw recently. And I believe the YouTube channel is Veritasium. I'm not sure. I'll actually link to these in the video description of this episode. But there was a video called The Success Paradox, and, and David really wanted me to see this because, one, I think he would have thought it would make me feel better, um, but also I think he thought it would be engaging content for the for the podcast. So I told him I would check it out and talk about it. Um, so click on the link uh, in the video description below, and you'll see what it is. But basically, it's a video of somebody um, talking about this idea of hard work versus luck and, and how it equates to success. And he tries to use some concrete examples um, to show that even people who attribute their success to hard work, um, when you actually crunch the numbers, a lot of it is success. Um, he uses some kind of novel examples like hockey players. He says that most successful hockey players, if you ask them why they're successful, it would be you know hard work and skill and those sorts of things. But he said, interesting, interestingly enough, when you look at successful hockey players, their uh, births skew toward the beginning of the year, January and February. And when you look back at their time playing, the reason that they tend to do better is could be, could be because they are older. You know, if the cutoff age for uh, playing in a certain league is X and you're, you know, if you're born in the early part of the year, uh, you're older. And especially in a developing age, you know, in your, your early teens or teenage years, that's quite an edge, you know, six months, even, a, you know, 11 months, right? If, they, if it's a cutoff of a year, that can give you a significant advantage. And if you happen to be better, um, if you have that edge, you're going to spend more time on the ice, you're going to get more exposure, you're going to get played more, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though these benefits might be small, you know, on a long timeline, they add up to something quite substantial. And that sounds abstract maybe, but um, the example that he uses that we can all relate to is the country of our birth. Right, the fact that we're born in the United in the United States means we, we there is the the ceiling on what we can accomplish is much higher than most parts of the world. If you happen to be born in Eritrea and the wealthiest person in your community makes, you know, not very much, the most you can accomplish is very little. Right, the scope of what you can achieve is limited by, um, in a very concrete way, by the country that you're born into. Um, but he talks about this idea that, um, and I think we all understand this, and I've talked about it on the podcast too, is there's a confirmation bias that we get sent from people who are successful. Because if you're aspiring to be successful, it makes sense that you would look at successful people and see what worked for them. And especially from you know, people like Elon Musk, or for me, the concrete example that I come back to is people like Joe Rogan. You know, there's a very sort of male-driven, sort of prototypical male driven thing about success and working hard. You know, I've talked about it as the, the David Goggins mentality, which is like, you got to go out and do your best all the time. And if you want to be successful, you got to, you got to put in the work and not only just the work, you got to put in more than anybody else. And, um, that is very, 
uh, seductive and I think very um, alluring. And I probably have more thoughts about it, which we'll get to, but that is, um, you know, that is something for people who are successful. They have adopted that. And by virtue of the fact that they are successful, that's what they tell other people that they need to do also. Um, what doesn't really get factored in is uh, luck. You know, that other people were successful. Um, you know, it confirms their bias that skill and um, uh, hard work are rewarded by virtue of the fact that it that it happened to them. But could it also be the case that there are exponentially more people who have done the exact same thing who were not successful for which it wasn't enough. Um, I mean, for me, I think of like, uh, actors, you know, actors, when you really look at it are very interchangeable. And, uh, you know, there are people who moved to Hollywood and like, I think it was, uh, not Robert Downey Jr. Um, who's the actor? Billy Bob Thornton has this story about like living in a motel in Los Angeles and, and needing to go to the hospital for malnutrition because he was eating, all he could afford to eat was potatoes. Um, you know, people living in their car, people doing whatever it took to be successful. Um, and they say, that's what it takes. That's what you have to do. Now, clearly that worked for them, but isn't it also true that there are just as many people who have done the exact same thing who aren't successful? You know, when people look at their life and they look at the success that they've had, they just don't weigh in the success. Um, or if they do, they don't treat it as, they don't give it enough credence as it, as they should, right? Um, and I guess one thing that came up for me too is with this video is uh, at one point he says that believe, whether or not you actually have control of your destiny, the idea of believing that you have control of your destiny is a very useful idea. Um you know, I guess in another in another episode, I talked about this idea of a, a necessary but insufficient condition, right? Like if you have, like if if you are tasked with something very difficult, and if you believe that twenty percent of your success at it will be chance, it's much more it's much easier to talk yourself out of doing it, right? Or not applying yourself to the extent that you should, um, because there is that part of you that says, well, it may not work out anyway, right? So you sort of loosen your grasp on the things that you do have control over. But if you actually believe that you're 100% in control of your destiny, and the more you put in, the more successful you'll be, you know, whether or not you're, the success you actually gain is due to that, that's a very useful thing to have, right? My buddy Jeff Campbell, who's now a father, congratulations, a musician, he worded it perfectly one time, which he says, you know, you have to, you literally have to stumble over, and you have to trip over an opportunity to be successful, but but the key is you have to be ready when it comes. Um, so yeah, that idea of a necessary but insufficient condition. All the hard work is necessary, but it doesn't guarantee success. You still have to trip over an opportunity. You still have to be lucky. But when that door opens or when the call comes or however you want to word it, um, um, you have to be ready for it. You have to have done the hard work already. So um, anyway, yeah, that video was sort of... Um, I mean, it took a very firm stance on what I've been talking about, but it it articulated one side of the argument that I have with myself sometimes. That happens to be very comforting, and I think the reason that I I like that and the thing I the reason I wrestle with it is because people who don't believe that, people who believe that success is just one hundred percent hard work, you know, they believe that luck factor is a lie that failures tell themselves to make themselves feel better about their lack of success. Um, so that is something that I feel, that's something that I think about. 
Um, I don't know that it's entirely true. I mean, I definitely believe that luck is a factor. And part of that is just looking at my own life. I mean, there's plenty of things that, uh, well, one, I can tell you this, most of the, most of the people that I know who continue to pursue a creative career, you know, well into their thirties are people of privilege. And when I actually think about it and reflect on most of the people I know who did, you know, gave a creative pursuit, their full focus, um, really in any part of their life, honestly, are incredibly privileged people. They come from wealthy families. Most of them are educated. Um, and I think a lot of what gives them that courage to move forward is the cushion that if it really doesn't work out, there is something to fall back on. It takes an entirely different level of courage and fortitude and belief to continue pursuing a creative career when there are no other options, when there is no fallback plan. If you look up at 35, like I did, and, uh, you know, you don't have a career, you know, there's no trust fund, there's no uh, college fund, there's no parents, there's, you know, you will be working at a restaurant for the rest of your life. And if you want to go back to school, that, you know, you're going to have to save your tips, right? Um, so yes, when I look back on that, most of the people I know who continue to pursue a creative career were just very privileged people. At the same time, though, so I, I, I want to hold that, but I do have a counterpoint too. And there was a, another video I watched, uh, which there was a counterpoint to this video, and I'll also link to it. It's not as well made, and it's also hard to take as seriously because it's made by a dude who looks like he's 15. So there's this whole lane of YouTube now where people do these sort of informative videos, and I enjoy them as much as the next person. But the the kind of the problem with them is that really anybody with sort of time and, and Wikipedia can make something that seems relatively convincing, right? So people make themselves out to be these sort of super educated people, but they've just sort of done a, a minimal amount of research to make a relatively competent video. But, um, you know, they're, they're certainly not experts on the topic that they're talking about. But there was a counterpoint video made, and I think despite this person's age, they, they actually had uh, some pretty good counterpoints. One of them was that when we talk about this concept of uh, hard work versus luck, we talk about them as if they're on equal footing, right? Or, or even we sort of tilt the scale. We tilt the scales toward luck, which I don't think is true. Um, as I've been saying, I think luck plays a role, and it may even be the most vital role. But I don't even think it's uh, in terms of your time expenditure. You can't spend half of your time waiting for luck, right? It has to be like. 99% hard work and uh you know you just have to have the magic lottery ball number drop or whatever the case may be. I mean the truth is uh hard work is just a prerequisite of being lucky. Um and really the type of luck we're talking about is different too. Like people talk about the luck that you kind of have in your uh career as being like a like a crapshoot, right? Like I just said the lottery ball example or like winning a poker hand. Actually poker is a bad example. Think of like roulette. You know, this idea that you just sort of roll the ball and if you happen to get lucky, whatever, as if it's completely random, which is really not what it is. It's more like a strategy. And that's why poker is actually a good example for what um, the type of luck actually is. You know, poker is a gamble. You know, you, there are many factors that you do not have control over. But people who really get into poker get into it because it's a winnable game. It's a game that can be solved more or less. You know, you can't always control uh, the hands that you're dealt. But if you play well consistently over a long period of time, you will win. 
you know, there are winning strategies that, you know, maybe you have a thousand failures in a row, but, you know, uh, in total, if you're a good poker player, if you play with good strategy, you will, you will win money over time. And so I think that's the kind of luck that I think is probably a more reasonable way um, of thinking about it. Um, there's this other idea too, and I actually, you know, I, I mentioned reconnecting with someone that I, um, you know, had gone to camp with years ago. I actually connected with them today, and I'm thinking about them now because this this actually came up. We were talking about it in terms of like uh, Trumpsters versus the liberal left, <clears throat> and we were talking about people's different, you know, sort of ethnocentric biases or whatever. But it reminded me of a counterpoint to this video, which is, you know, people will sort of sit there and say, oh, successful people, they don't, uh, they don't give luck enough credit or whatever it is. But there's also the danger of another kind of bias, right? Which is for people who are successful, who downplay um, uh, the hard work of other people, you know, that's a bias for their own experience. Their, their confirmation bias was, I worked hard, I was successful, therefore hard work um, equates to success. There's not a huge difference between saying, look, I worked hard and I wasn't successful, therefore hard work does not equal success, right? It's just, it, 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 and that, I think that's why I get pitted between these two things, which is like, you know, am I telling myself the truth or am I just telling myself what I want to believe? Because I think a lot of especially people especially the people who gripe on social media the people who gripe on youtube comments you know just like the people who are like flat at, flat earthers who find their peers in a in a message forum you can believe whatever you want and you'll find people who will confirm whatever you believe and uh you know it's that whole the sort of like social media echo chamber we always talk about but um um But yeah, what's the takeaway from all this stuff? I think, um, you know, I've harped on this uh, game developer, Jonathan Blow, a lot. He's the maker of The Witness, and I've talked about it. I think he's great, and I've listened to him talk a lot, and I've watched videos of him just sort of talking about his philosophy of making games. And something that came up for me was, um, you know, he spends insane amounts of time making these incredibly artful games that happen to be very successful, but on paper, they shouldn't be. You know, his game, The Witness, is just a, a puzzle game, an island, a sort of open world island that you walk around solving uh, incredibly difficult puzzles. But the beauty of that game is, and I won't go into it here, but I, I've said on the podcast before, there's a whole element that is actually much larger than the game that you're likely to see, that if you ever stumble on it, it's like it makes the game, <clears throat> you know, 10 times as big as you think it is. And there's a good chance you'll play this game and you'll never see it. So if you were talking to a, to a game developer and just talking about from an economic or a psychological or whatever perspective, how can you spend, how can you justify spending 75% of your time and resources on something that many people who play the game might not even see? Well, that's a creative vision, right? I, I, I think there's a whole sort of philosophical and sort of psycho-spiritual perspective that informs that. I think that's why the game is a metaphor for life, because I think that's what life is. You know, most of us walk through it and don't, do we, we don't dare to pursue the little nooks and crannies that actually could be the secret to a whole world that we didn't even know existed. Now, 
that's a hard thing to give yourself to, especially if you're saying, I want to be a game developer, therefore the games I make have to be financially successful. Um, if that's your goal, that is a horrible strategy to take. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to take the most of my time and money and put it towards something that most people might not even see. But that's what makes it special. That's why I'm even talking about it right now. And uh, you bank on that, you know, um, you know, you have to create the things that you want to see in the world. And so the point I'm getting at and how this relates to success, which is, which is everything is hard. Anything worth doing is exceptionally difficult. And so, you know, not that I'm a game developer, but when you think about games, it's like, look, what is successful right now? Well, it's, uh, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is, like shoot, shooter games, right? The, um, <laughs> I was going to say like Snake Ops or I don't know what the fucking games are called, but like, like, like a shooter game. So you have everybody kind of making the same video game over and over again, the same iteration of it. And when he talks to game developers who justify it, that's what they say. Like that's, that's what it takes to be successful right? To be successful in this market, now you have to make these types of games. But his reflection has always been, look, that's an incredibly um, uh, competitive field, right? So for the same reason that people say, look, it's competitive, you have to play to the market, this is your biggest chance of being successful. When you still look at the numbers, you're probably not going to succeed, you're going to release your game. And I mean, nobody's going to nobody's going to play it. So if what if you feel compelled to make games, your your time is exponentially better spent doing something that you believe in, doing something different, doing the passion project. Because at the end of the day, you're going to put a lot of time and money and effort into it, and nobody's going to see it. So given that that is what is almost certain, do the thing that you want to do. So here's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think, like most things in life, it's not either or, it's both. You know, luck is is a factor. You do have to be lucky, but you have to work your fucking ass off too. And even if you aren't successful, even if the odds are stacked against you, I would even say because of that, because the odds are already stacked against you, if you are going to do it, really your only chance of success is doing something different. I mean, I, I see this now as someone who facilitates uh, interviews you know, the agency I work for, we have a huge volunteer program. I do all of the interviews for the volunteers now. And the people who are the least engaging for me personally are the people who are the most coached up. When I sit across from people who, you know, they have the education, maybe they took some professional development coaching, or maybe they've just been through the cycle of like applying for private schools and then maybe uh, filling out uh, uh, personal essays and personal statements for their college applications or you know, they've had professional environments or internships. When I sit across from them and they're saying all the right answers, it is the most off-putting thing for me personally. Um, the people who really speak to me are people who kind of are genuine, who speak from the heart. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I don't think your goal in life should be I don't think your goal in life should be to be successful. I think it should be to be successful at whatever it is you want to do. Or to shoot for it anyway. You know, if you shoot for something and you're able to, and you fail, you can always retool. But I think, you know, if you actually shoot for what you want and you're successful, you win the lottery. But if you just kind of shoot for what you think will be successful or what you think you should do, 
being successful at that could be your worst nightmare. Because now you've spent all your energy trying to succeed at something you actually don't want. You know, it can be a whole sort of uh, be careful what you wish for type of thing. So anyway, I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to say go for it anyway. I mean, one thing I said, and this is fucking, you better write this fucking shit down. I remember saying it in an interview one time. Um, I was doing like a podcast. There's only like two or three things I've said in my life that I think, oh, you should write that down and that should be a fucking quote. And this was one of them, which is, you know, what other people experience as your success is really just your continued operation in the face of all of your failure. You know, when we look at successful people, we don't see what happens behind the scenes. It's very easy for us to just assume that everything they touch turns to gold and life is easy for that person. But you don't see how hard they work behind the scenes and how much failure they're experiencing, you know, and only their success is getting filtered through. For a part of that is social media is a, is, is a self-curated highlight reel. People only share their success, right? But behind the scenes is so much failure. When you talk to successful screenwriters or even actors, you know, it may seem like Hugh Jackman is working you know, doing five movies a year, but I guarantee you there are 10 movies every year that he goes out for that he doesn't get. So yes, what other people experience as your success is just your continued operation in the face of all your failure, right? And also, I think, you know, I think people who say that it's all about, it's all about luck are kind of being disingenuous too, because we don't call people who, people who work hard and aren't lucky, how do I word this? (laughs) Um, We don't call people who don't work hard unlucky right? We call them lazy. If it was really, if luck was really the deciding factor, that's what we would call people. Um, if we really thought luck was success, we would call people who don't work hard and weren't successful unlucky, but we don't. We call them lazy. I mean, because if, 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 if no effort plus luck equals nothing and hard work plus no luck equals nothing, Hard work plus luck equals success, right? So hard work is the important part. Anyway, I don't fucking know what I'm talking about. I've talked myself into a fucking, um, into, uh, into numbness. I will say, though, every, lu- every, every lucky thing that's ever happened to me is something that I... You know, when I played music, every every lucky thing that ever happened to me was something that I asked for. I mean, just recently, in my um, in my psych class, we had a research proposal that was due um, just just yesterday, and uh, my research proposal is about a correlation between life crisis and uh, religious conversion. Um, and the reason I even think about that is I, I've talked about my my experiences with the I Ching and spirituality and. Um, you know, as someone who's been an atheist and skeptic their whole life, you know, it was a very bizarre time and scary time in my life when I was interacting with the I Ching and Chinese philosophy for the first time and was having these sort of spiritual consciousness raising, you know, spooky experiences with a book, right? Um, but even through, as important as all that was and as, as 
formative as that experience was, I've always suspected that because I was at a vulnerable place in my life, um, that there were like emotional underpinnings to that experience um, that might generalize to other people who are religious converts as well. Um, I spent a lot of time with different religious groups in my life. And when I've spoken with new converts, it's not uncommon to hear that, you know, there was a recent uh, life crisis of sorts, right? Um, so where, why, why, why the fuck am I telling you this? Um, that's my research proposal. Ah, yes. Um, you know, you have to cite references. And one of the things I was modeling my own research proposal off of was just a, a survey, um, you know, surveying religious, recent religious converts and, and trying to identify if, if they've experienced crisis in their life. There were two studies that used their own questionnaires, but they were not included with the published paper. And so I was so interested in seeing what questions they were asking. I just emailed, I just emailed the person who wrote the study, right? Or who wrote the research paper that I found. And the next day I got a response from the guy and he just attached it as like a PDF to his email. And I realized he's not Michael Jackson, but the point is, is that people are accessible, you know? I mean, and I, I've had this over and over again in my life. I remember one of the first things that I did that, um, you know, kind of landed me a cool gig, uh, and was actually kind of my foot in the door at bottom of the hill, the venue where I, I was talking about Paul front of house engineer. Um, you know, this is what got my foot in the door there. But Matt Pond PA is sort of a, you know, uh, I think he's out of retirement now, but he had retired in the last uh, 10 years from music. But he was kind of a bigger deal in the beginning of the 2000s with Death Cab for Cutie and this sort of indie rock thing was kind of breaking up. Matt, Matt Pond PA was was one of those guys. And uh, he was playing at Bottom of the Hill and he just tweeted out like, hey, who should we take on tour with us? And uh, I basically asked my mailing list and everyone I knew to just tweet at Matt Pond, like, hey, have this guy open for you. And uh, it ended up working. You know, I, I had been in touch with the, the booking agent and the, the talent buyer at the venue. And they basically hit me up and said, hey, man, you want to play the show? And I was like, yes, I do. Um, so that got me in the door. Um, and also just thinking about hard work. I mean, I think what really solidified my spot and got me tons of other shows there and led to some of the coolest experiences of, of when I did play music was I played this show with this dude, Jay Brannon. And I've opened up for him twice, but the second time I opened up for him was at bottom of the hill. And the day of the show, maybe even the day before I was so sick, I couldn't even speak. I remember calling, um, Megan Slankert, who I think I mentioned on the last episode too. Uh, you know, she's never had a job in her life. She's just been a, a singer songwriter, uh, ever since she could fucking do it. But I called her up and asked her, like, what should I do? What should I do? Should I cancel? Do you have some sort of, like, miracle cure or whatever? And, of course, there's nothing. You know, you just have to heal. Like my back. You just have to give it time. And so I thought, I could cancel. I'd have every excuse in the world to cancel this gig. But I just felt in my gut like I had to do it. Like, one, I had to prove to myself that I could do it. I had to prove to myself that I could stand on stage and be awful and still get through it. Because there was, you know, it was like a, it was like a trial by fire you know, like a comedian has to bomb on stage. I knew I had to have this experience. I was going to forge something through this experience of playing to a sold out room and being fucking God awful and still getting through it. Right. I would forge some kind of thing in myself that I would be able to draw on in other parts of my life. And so I show up and I see Ramona, the talent buyer, and she, you know, she, you know, can hear my voice and hears, hears sound check and just knows that something's wrong. And she just thanked me for being there. She said, look, uh, you know, it's thanks for keeping your commitment and coming through. 
And I went on stage and I sang and it was fucking awful. And um, I even remember um, this dude, uh, Bill Hansel, a really good guy, really, uh, really good music supporter in the community out here. Ended up house sitting for the guy like once, but um, he walked in and came to see me play. And uh, I had another friend who was sort of standing in the back of the theater. And when he walked in the door and heard me singing, he just looked at this guy and said, holy shit, what happened? Is he like freaking out? Like he thought I was just like breaking down on stage. Um, but, uh, I think that experience really impressed Ramona, the talent buyer. And that was the reason that I played other shows. Um, I mean, I, I later reached out to her and wanted to open for the mountain goats, you know, which if you're sort of into indie singer songwriters, you know, the mountain goats. And she said, no, but open up for this dude, John Bellion. He's like playing the sold out show and, and you can play that. And I looked him up and I was like, what the fuck? It was like this rapper, whatever the fuck. And, uh, it just didn't seem like my gig. Like, I don't know why I was on that gig. Turned out to be the, like one of the coolest shows I've ever played. John Bellion was the, one of the only dudes in my life who I've met who had it. Like, you just meet someone and you talk about this. Like, some people are just going to be successful. And I met him. And not only his charisma and his band and everything that they did. I mean, I opened for a lot of bands. And some of them you've heard of. And these people are fucking miserable. And they sort of mope through their sound check. These guys were on point. Their, the show was sold out. The audience was fucking super into them. I mean, you could just, there was a whole vibe in that room that night where it was like I had won the lottery. I felt super lucky. Um, and it, it does feel like a gift. I mean, it was an opportunity that somebody gave me, right? But there were things I had to do before that to prove myself, to be worthy of that gift. Um, and that experience, I ended up opening up for John Bellion when he came back and played a sold-out Slims, you know, which was a venue I had always wanted to play. So that was cool. And now, I mean, John Bellion went on to do, like, arenas, and, like, he, I guess he just co-wrote, like, Justin Bieber's newest song, and he's co-written for Eminem and Rihanna and all sorts of shit. But, um, so that guy's the real fucking deal. But the only reason I ever was able to stand two feet away from that guy was because, you know... I looked at an opportunity when I could have, I had every right to stay home and I didn't, I fucking pushed through it anyway. So, um, anyway, I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear. I mean, on the one hand, I'm trying to say that luck is a huge factor, but yeah, you really, but you have to work hard. And, uh, it, even then it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. I mean, I still consider myself a failed musician and yet anything that, anything that did happen to me, it was, it was a confluence of luck, but also putting myself in the right place at the right time and pursuing things. I mean, I ended up doing the Matt Nathanson tour because I mentioned Paul. Paul, um, who's the front of the house engineer at Bottom of the Hill, he toured with Matt Nathanson and did front of house sound for him earlier in his career. And Paul just tweeted out one of my songs one time, right? And um, Matt Nathanson saw it. And... Um, just started following me on Twitter. And I've seen this thing. I've actually had people do it for me as well, which is very flattering. But, you know, uh, like if anyone ever has like someone semi-successful, follow them or whatever. I've seen people like take a screenshot of the of the notification and like share it, you know, and say like, oh, how cool is it that someone so is following me? And it's like, dude, you're fucking embarrassing yourself, right? Um, if this is something you want to do, if you're just a fan, by all means. But if you're trying to present yourself as a professional or, or, or somebody in this business, you, you can't do that kind of sycophantic stuff. It just, it looks, 
it looks amateur. But um, I sent him a message and I said, hey man, not sure how you found my music, but um, if you ever want to get coffee sometime, I, I think I learn, I could learn a lot from you. Um, and he was like, cool. And uh, we did. And, uh, you know, I just maintained that relationship. When he put out cool stuff, I just let him know that I was seeing what he was doing. I kept him abreast of stuff that I was doing. And I followed up. I mean, that's another thing too. I mean, I have faced a lot of rejection. <laughs> I would say like 99.9% rejection uh, of things that you go out for that you don't get or um, shows that you want to play that you don't get to play. But the ones that I did get, I followed up on. I didn't take no for an answer. You know, you're not a dick about it, but you have, you follow up politely. And, uh, and uh, you know, I asked Matt Nathanson if I could open up for him like, uh, I would say honestly like half a dozen times before the answer was yes. It was always no. And it, and it wasn't like a no, fuck off, no. It was like, nah, nah now's not the right time. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, he announced his acoustic tour for the one that I did, and I just hit him up and said, like, hey, man, is now the time? And uh, it was. And um, But even then, I would qualify that as, like, I didn't get everything that I wanted. I mean, I, I wanted to do the whole tour. You know, it was like two months across the entire country, and that's what I had in my mind. I was like, dude, I'm going to do the whole fucking tour. And uh, when I was negotiating it with, with, with his agent, they offered me the West Coast. And at first, dude, how crazy is it? At first, I was like really disappointed. I was like, damn, man, I'm not going to get the whole thing. I'm only going to be able to do my little, my little rink-a-dink like West Coast thing. Goddamn. But of course, you know, once I actually start crunching the numbers, I realize that's actually best. I mean, the other thing, too, is you don't always get what you want. But most of the time, things kind of work out. You know, at least that's been my experience. You know, I don't always get what I want, but it's usually like you get, you kind of get what you deserve. You know, most of the things that I went out for that I really wanted that I didn't get, I realized if I had gotten them, I would have fucking failed. (laughs) You know, I think so much of when we evaluate ourselves, we think we're ready for the shot. We think we're ready for the big time. But when we actually look at ourselves, like sometimes we just bite off more than we can chew. And we just think, I really needed... 50 steps in between what I wanted and where I was at to kind of develop, you know, because in the same way you have to sort of, you know, get lucky, but stumble over an opportunity or sorry, you have to um, stumble over an opportunity, but do all the hard work is you really have to be ready for it. And you just can't fake the funk. Like you may, you know, they say like fake it till you make it. I mean, you can fake your peers, you can fake your family, but people who really do the shit, you can't, you can't fool them. Like they know the real deal. They've seen it all. And it's kind of like what I'm saying when I sit across from people in interviews. I've done over 100 interviews now. And I know what it's like to sit across from somebody who thinks they're telling me all the right things, who thinks that they're winning me over, but they're not. You know, there's a certain, uh, I don't know. Uh, It's just something that you can't fake. You know, it's like stand-up comedians. When you go back and look at, and I know he's a controversial figure, but when you go back and look at Louis C.K.'s early stand-up comedy... It's insane. He's talking a mile a minute. You know, it's like you can just feel that he doesn't have the experience that he has come to develop. If you can tolerate watching him now, you see his stand-up. He's very calm. He's very confident. That's someone who knows that when they, when they, when they say a joke, it's going to get a laugh. You know, they have the hours behind them. They settle into this confidence, this nonchalance. Um, whereas, you know, when you're starting out, everything's so important. You know, uh, overacting, over singing, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, have I made my point? I think so. 
Oh, I think I have. I probably belabored it, honestly. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Anything to say in summary. I guess, um, you know, believing that you're in control of your destiny is a useful delusion, right? I think that's the quote from the video. You know, believing that you're in control of your destiny, whether or not you are, is a useful delusion. Because you, sh- you should just kind of live that way. Um, you have to... Act as if you believe it and know that it's not true, right? Um, there's something, too, about, you know, I kind of, I don't think this should be a convincing point, but this, um, you know, the original Success Paradox video, he sort of closes by saying, and, you know, why not um, believe in luck? Because if you are successful and you turn around and say that, hey, you got lucky, people like you. Um, I don't think that should be the deciding factor. Um, I also think there's plenty of great advice that hurts people's feelings when they hear it. I mean, a lot of people don't like to be told that they have to work their ass off. Um, yes, it's luck, but you know, you have to work your ass off. And of course, this is not to pretend like it's an equal footing for everybody. Um, many people who are successful have advantages. So I'm, I'm not trying to remove the privilege part. I'm just saying very few, (laughs) there's very few people who I think who don't work hard and are just successful. Um, there are definitely people who have a lot of advantages, but they also work hard and they're very lucky. So, um, but this idea that um, believing that you're in control of your des- destiny is a useful delusion because um, the harder you work, the more you close that lus- luck gap, right? Or you're working smarter. Not even about working harder. It's about working smarter, right? Anyway, fuck it. I think I made my point. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the time now. We we have to finish the episode soon, and, and I spent my whole fucking time doing that. But um, what else can we talk about? Um, I finished I Am Legend, the book. Uh, it was okay. It was a little... Uh, um, I mean, it, you know, seeing the movie, you definitely understand why they made certain changes. Um, but interesting. Yeah, interesting book. The other thing is, last night I watched Rocky for the first time. I mean, thinking, talking of hard work and success and luck and all that sort of stuff... Um, I had never seen Rocky before. And I think like this book that I read, there's something about dated movies. I mean, uh, so my mind's going a thousand places, but you know, to me, like the quintessential, like modern movie is Tenet. Visually, technically, um, in terms of the music, the acting, everything about it is so now. Um, when you look at old movies, it's just insane to think how far we come. Um, I mean, first of all, when you watch Rocky, you're watching the opening fight scene, and you can see that like the punches are are definitely not landing. So part of it is Rocky had to be made so you know people could learn from those mistakes, and you know directors of photography could learn how to shoot boxing movies. More of them had to be made, etc. But it's just funny to watch an old movie, and there's just so much going on that just to a, to a modern perspective because we are used to things being shot so well that we see the artifice, you know? Um, so that's part of it. But also, you watch older movies, and the pace is so goddamn slow. I mean, I looked up, you know, just trying to gauge it for myself. Like, when is the exposition of this movie over? First of all, the credits, I think, don't end until seven minutes into the film, Right? Like there's a little bit of movie and then there's the credit and then, then there's like the credits. And it's like, I think at like the seven minute, seven minutes and 15 seconds is when the credits ended. The movie is still technically in its exposition an hour into the movie. 
Like, I don't think Rocky gets told that he's going to fight, which is basically like the, 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 the nadir of the film, right? Like the, 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 the climax of the film uh, until like an hour into the movie. And it's like, if that movie came out today, it would just fucking flop. There's just no way. And also, there's two technical things in older movies and even television shows that I see all the time that are just insane to me, which is the amount of shots that are out of focus. I mean, I watched Training Day again recently, which is an undisputed great movie. Denzel Washington's best like villain role. Um, uh, Ethan Hawke's good in it. It's just a, it's just a really it's just a really solid solid movie. Um, there's so many shots that are out of focus in that movie. You know, like and and it's just it's I think about it in terms of like auto tune with music. Um, that was just the normal when it happened, right? Things were shot on film, cameras were. You know the, the 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 image quality was just not uh, not as sharp. The lenses were just not as sharp as they are now in digital. Um, but but we didn't know to look for those types of things. Um, you see, if you go back and watch Friends, it's insane. You know, I think they're like uh, I think aren't sitcom sitcom shot with like six like four cameras or something like that. But like they'll just cut to a camera and it's like out of out of focus. You know, and uh, but the thing about movies too that I really notice is sound editing. You know, because these things were, you know, when you edited old film, you were doing it with like blades and tape, you know, editing sound was just a a totally different thing. It wasn't like Final Cut where you just sort of like drag and drop things and just sort of put fades in, you know, everything had to be manipulated by hand. And when you watch Rocky and they're boxing, you hear the um, ADR, which is like the post-processing audio recording. Like you hear, like there's dialogue between uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa that was recorded in the studio afterwards, and you can tell because the not only the volume uh, of the dialogue, but the f- the fidelity of the dialogue. You know, you can hear that it was recorded in a studio. You know, whereas now audio can be engineered so like they'll add certain types of reverb to it to make it sound like it was in the space. You know, it's just uh, technically things are so far advanced and we're so used to it that when we go back and see older stuff, the Ways that it is inferior are just glaringly obvious. Image quality, edits, pacing, right? The pacing of editing, sound editing. You can literally hear sound stop between cuts sometimes. Background noise sounds weird. You know, it's uh, not natural. So uh, things have come a long way. But, um... (sighs) And here you are watching a video that's in 720 uh, 720 HD because, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's what we're fucking with on this, uh, on this webcam. Um, so who am I to talk anyway? Well, uh, let's let that be enough today, folks. Um, that felt like kind of a frantic episode to me, but, uh, but, uh, what, what can I say? It is what it is. So, um, uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. Uh, let people know why it's good. Uh, that stuff can convince people to check it out. Uh, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, if you want to tune into the video podcast, you can on YouTube, but it'll be much easier if you just go to thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You'll see the latest episode there. Uh, you can watch the video on our site or click through to YouTube where you can subscribe and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, wish me luck with my back. Let's hope I get back to normal so that I can um, I can work out again and, and, uh, and be active. Um, otherwise, 
That's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.